0: Well I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, Genesis 17. If you uh, noticed in the weekly email, uh, if you looked there, uh, I did say that I was going to cover all the way into chapter 18, verse 15, and I gave it my best, but um, we're, not, we're only going to cover to the end of chapter 17 um, this week, and uh, that'll get us get us uh, yeah, I, I think it's for everyone's benefit, anyways. We are in chapter 17, and last time uh, we saw that this, this chapter is the climax of God's giving of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, we have seen how God had promised to Abraham what would become known as the Old Covenant, where God would make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants. He would give to them the land of Canaan, this is of course the people of Israel, And we also notice that the Messiah would then come from that group of people, and he would bring about what is known later as the New Covenant. And so another way of saying this is both the Old and the New Covenants come from Abraham Uh, in different ways. They are different covenants, but they both stem from him and in different ways. Uh, On that Old Covenant, which would govern life in the land of Canaan for the people of Israel, Uh, It had its own laws. So we we looked last week at circumcision being commanded uh, here in chapter 17. And later that would be brought into the Mosaic Covenant, which again, the the Mosaic Covenant, together with the Abrahamic, uh, together make up the Old Covenant, as it is called. So circumcision was one of those commandments that was given, one of those laws. It would also later have various other institutions that would be part of it. So we think of the whole, for example, uh, the sacrificial system and everything that went on at the temple. And these laws and institutions, these realities were important in and of themselves uh, for the people of Israel under that covenant, for life in that covenant. But they were also there, they also existed in order to point forward to greater realities that, would, that were yet to come, a greater things that the Messiah himself would bring about. And so they were preparing as well for something that the Lord Jesus would come and do later on. And this is what we've been talking about over the last number of weeks as we've talked about this matter of typology, these Old Testament realities that are significant in and of themselves and so serve their own purpose under the Old Covenant, but they're also preparing And teaching for what's going to come later on when the Messiah would arrive. And so this Abrahamic covenant is given to Abraham and it spans the course of a number of chapters. It begins in chapter 12 and then again in chapter 15 and then as we've been seeing here in chapter 17 as well. And so we are partway through this final chapter that makes up this giving of the Abrahamic covenant. And so last time... Uh, We looked uh, at verses 1 to 8, and we saw there where the Lord reaffirms and expands the promises that he had made already to Abraham. Namely, he promises nations will come from him and kings and many descendants, and he's going to give uh, them the land of Canaan in particular. And then we looked at, in verses 9 to 14, uh, the call for Abraham and his offspring to then keep the covenant By obeying God's command to circumcise the males. Uh, And they were threatened, even as we saw last week, with being cut off from the Abrahamic covenant if they didn't do this. And so we noted last time that this old covenant is a covenant of works, which means that there is this demand of obedience in order to enjoy the benefits of that covenant. Namely, here we see the demand of circumcision. And so we also noted last time, and again, we'll state this very strongly and as clear as possible, that this was not saying that you need to obey in order to receive the blessing of eternal life, in order to receive salvation, Uh, That was something that Abraham had received by faith. In chapter 15, verse 6, you see that very clearly. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation has always been by believing the promise of God to send the Messiah, who would then be the one to rescue sinners from the curse of sin. And of course, under the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the Messiah's coming and, and again, we've been seeing how Genesis is driving us towards that. And now, of course, we recognize that that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and came to save sinners. And So this promise, believing this promise, has always been the means by which man has been saved, been justified before God. But this promise was contained within or housed within this group of Abraham's descendants who were under this old covenant with God. The Messiah would one day arise from amongst the people of Israel and he would bring about the new covenant in his blood and he would bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. So of course we noted again last time that this new covenant that Christ Jesus brings is the covenant of grace, which is to say that Jesus himself has come in order to fulfill all of the obligations, to fulfill all of the obedience to the law, to pay the debts that we owe for our violations of God's law, namely our sins. He has come to earn redemption by all that he has done in his work. And then God distributes that blessing to sinners graciously upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is a different principle than the principle of works by which we work in order to receive a blessing. God blesses purely out of his grace, and that's how he bestows salvation upon sinners. And so as Hebrews says, the new covenant, the covenant of grace, is built on better promises than the old covenant. It promises actual and eternal redemption and forgiveness, not just blessed life in the land of Canaan. And so all of that by way of reminder and introduction, but let's pick up here in verse 15 and we will read through to the end of the chapter. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, Those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. We have in these verses two kind of clear sections. Uh, In verses 15 to 21, we have this promise to Sarah that she is going to have a son and Abraham's reaction to that. Uh, And then this is followed with this section in verses 22 to 27 in which we see Abraham's obedience to the Lord in the command to circumcise the men of his household. And so I want to just work through these uh, two sections and cover them under two headings. Uh, the first is God's sovereign choice. And the second, the believer's dutiful obedience. God's sovereign choice and the believer's dutiful obedience. And so let's begin first with God's sovereign choice. Uh, We discover here in verses 15 and following that the promises that God has been making to Abraham that we have been examining are not going to be passed down through Ishmael. Ishmael is, in fact, not going to be part of that promised line. He's not going to be a father of the old covenant people. Uh, Israel will later look back at the fathers. Ishmael is not going to be one of those. Nor will the Messiah come from Ishmael's line. God, in his sovereignty, according to the purpose of his own will, has other plans here. Sarai, though old at this point and past the age of bearing children, she is yet going to have a child. They've been wandering this land of Canaan for 23 years now, and God now appears and says, that she is still going to have a child, even though she is old, as is Abraham. Verse 15, let's read that again. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. This is the first time Uh, In the story, in the narrative of Genesis, that Sarah has explicitly been brought into the promises that have been made to Abraham. Uh, We have seen back in chapter 16 that she assumed that this was beyond the capacity for her to bear a child. She's too old. And so she brought this plan to Abraham to take Hagar as kind of a surrogate wife to have a child by her because the promises God has made to you can't come through me, surely, so here's another way we'll try to do it. Sarai's name is also changed here, just as Abraham's name was changed earlier in the chapter. And it is said here that she will have nations come from her. Kings will arise from her. And so these promises that God has been making to Abraham, they are going to come to pass through the birth of a child that's going to be through Sarah and not through Hagar. And this is all according to God's purposes and God's plans. And then we have Abraham's response to this in verse 17. Let's read to 19. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his people after him. Now, before returning to this whole matter of God sovereignly choosing Isaac, I just want to take a few minutes to talk about this response of Abraham to what the Lord has told him here. I have always understood that Abraham's laughter here was uh, incredulous. That is, it's rooted in unbelief. Uh, that he's really saying it cannot be this way. This is really an impossibility. We're far too old for this. It can't be. And so he tries to reason with the Lord. Uh, here's Ishmael. Do this through him instead. Because he's, he's filled with unbelief about this. Now, many people uh, understand it that way. And, and such people don't deny that Abraham was a man of faith. But rather would just say that initially here uh, he's overcome. And his initial reaction is one of unbelief. And this would certainly make some sense of why it is that Abraham says, no, no, uh, let's do this through Ishmael and, and try to reason with the Lord in that way. And of course, uh, next week when we get into chapter 18, we will see that Sarah's laughter, she will later laugh when the Lord returns and again says that she's going to give a, uh, birth to a child. Sarah laughs, and her laughter there is very clearly rooted in, in an initial unbelief to the news. Uh, She's directly called out there by the Lord for her laughter, and she tries to deny uh, that she laughed. And so it's very possible that that is precisely the same thing that's happening with Abraham. They both kind of respond initially with this unbelief, and and it bursts out in laughter. And uh, most modern commentaries... Uh, understand it that way, at least so far as I can tell. Of all the ones that I've read um, that were written in the last however many years, hundred years, we'll say, uh, they they all take it that way. They just assert it. Abraham's responding in unbelief. Uh, But one thing that surprised me in, in preparing this chapter is that every commentator that I read, the old guys, so those who were writing prior to, say, the 1800s, Uh, They all took a very different view of Abraham's laughter. Uh, They all claim that it is actually a laughter of joy, not a laughter of unbelief. And when I first came across that view, I simply dismissed it. I thought, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't seem right. But then I kept running into this, and, and I realized there's a pattern here. They're All the old guys are saying this, and all the new guys are not. And so I grabbed all the old guys I could off the shelf, not a lot, but maybe five or six, between, you know... 1500s to 1700s, and every single one of them said the same thing. They all took the same view. They were aware that others might say this is doubt, but they all took a different view of it. And so I thought I should probably look into this a little more, and and, and I am now of the opinion that the older writers are correct, that we should understand this to be a laughter of joy that is in Abraham. And so I'll just take a couple minutes to explain why I think that way. For starters, we're told here that Abraham's initial response was to fall on his face before the Lord. He falls on his face. And everybody agrees that that, that's a a humble thing, a a, a humble response, an act of humility. The Lord appears, he's speaking to Abraham, he makes this promise to him, and he falls on his face in humility before the Lord. And reverence. So it would be a little bit odd if that was accompanied by a, a laughing disbelief. Uh, Those two things, I don't think they fit real well together. To be so in awe of the Lord and of what he's saying that you would drop on your face in humility before him and simultaneously be laughing in disbelief at what he's telling you. Secondly, uh, the older writers, they all point to Romans chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, as evidence, as proof, that this is the right interpretation of what's going on here. So I want to read that. We read it last time. If you remember last Sunday, we read Romans chapter 4. And maybe when you came across this, a couple of questions came up in your mind. But I want to read it again. Romans 4, 19. There, this is, of course, inspired scripture. The Spirit through the Apostle Paul. It says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. So at this point in Genesis, chapter 17, he is 99 years old. He's almost 100. All the chapters before this, chapter 16, he was 86 years old. And so everything coming before that, he was even younger than that. So the time that Paul is looking to and referring to is Genesis 17, when he is about 100 years old. So he's talking about that time, saying he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body. Or, Paul continues, when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So what that is saying there that Abraham possessed an unwavering faith despite his age, despite Sarah's barrenness here when he was 100 years old, that would fit very well, and the fact that he gave glory to God, that would fit very well with this being a laughter of joy and of astonishment and amazement at what God is telling him. The view that Abraham is in unbelief because of their age has to deal with this text in Romans chapter 4, which is saying on the very point of their age and of Sarah's barrenness, he did not waver when he was about 100 years old, but rather he gave God glory. Paul's saying he didn't doubt that specific point. And so even, that, even the mess we saw in chapter 16 with Hagar... It wasn't so much that it was impossible for God to give Sarah a baby, that maybe that's what was motivating Abraham, but there had been no explicit promise yet given to Sarah that she would be the mom. And so they, they, it seemed, un, I think they should have inferred that, but it seemed unlikely to them. And so they adopted, if you recall, a pragmatic worldly solution to their problem. This is how the world around them in the ancient Near East would deal with a a barren woman and so they adopt this kind of a practice. So it is here in chapter 17 that it is now clear that Sarah will indeed be the mother of the child. And Abraham, according to Romans, didn't waver but grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. so if Abraham was laughing in joy and amazement at what God is saying here, what do we make of his insertion or objection maybe that that Ishmael might live before you? Well, I think to illustrate what I think that's getting at, uh, imagine for a moment if you were in need of a car and you couldn't afford to buy one and you had a very wealthy and very generous friend and he came to you and said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to buy you a car. In fact, I'm going to buy you a Ferrari. And you laugh in amazement at that, but you say, you know, man, I thank you, but a Camry is just fine. You know, save yourself the money and the hassle of trying to get a Ferrari here, and let's just roll down the Toyota, and, you can, and a Camry is more than sufficient for what I need. There's a simpler solution here. Let's just go with that. Right? That, that objection there is not an objection of you're not capable of pulling off the Ferrari or you're not really that generous, that's not what that objection is. It's really just saying, that's very kind of you, it's amazement at that, but here's a simpler and easier solution for us, uh, the Toyota. I think that's the kind of thing that's going on here with Abraham. It's not that he truly doubts and thinks God's incapable of giving Sarah a baby, but he's asking, he's saying, there, there's already a child of mine here now. Uh, Can can we just do this through him? Can we not just make this happen through Ishmael? And he is no doubt uh, motivated by concern for Ishmael. Perhaps he he wonders if another child is going to receive all these promises, what will become of Ishmael? Maybe concern about him. He loves his son. He wants what's good for him. Perhaps he doesn't want the... Complications that are going to come within his own family of having another child through Sarah. And we know it does get complicated. We'll see that in a couple more chapters. But I don't think it is purely unbelief at the power of God in this moment for Abraham. And I think there are some reasons why newer writers don't take this approach and the older writers do. And it has to do with a shift in how we have how we read the Bible now, that is in very very different from the way the reformers would read the Bible, and those who came in the generations after the reformers read their Bible as well. That we we are told that we are to kind of silo each book of the Bible and just take it on its own terms and not read it as a whole together. Uh, there's uh, something called the analogy of Scripture which is to say that Scripture is to interpret Scripture. and So wherever Scripture speaks about a matter, we, we take that as divine commentary on the text, on the Bible. And so many would say, no, we come to Genesis, we almost, I mean, it's almost this strongly. I've been uh, sat in seminary class when we were in Alberta and was taught this very thing, that you, you have to basically just take Genesis and leave everything else out of it. And you just have to deal with whatever is in Genesis for now. It has Because that's all that the writers of Genesis would have had initially. I guess they'd have the first five books of the Bible. Maybe you can go to Exodus uh, to to help you clarify. But But you're supposed to just leave it in Genesis. And so it's interesting that all of those modern commentaries that I mentioned that I read, again, these are just the ones in my possession. Not one of them referenced Romans chapter 4, 19 to 20. None of them made any effort to try to say, well, how does that fit? How does that explain or, or what's going on there? Not, not one of them did. Uh, they're just simply dealing with Genesis. And If that's all you had, I guess you might assume that this is disbelief. Uh, but we have this commentary that comes later on that informs us. And so this is one of the ways we ought to be reading our Bibles. This is one ultimately inspired book that is God's scriptures. It's his word to us. And so these later writers are are reading the Bible correctly and understanding it correctly, the New Testament writers. And so the way they interpret and understand Genesis is how we ought to try to read and understand Genesis. And it's one of the reasons that I keep coming to the New Testament as we're going through Genesis to say, to look at Hebrews chapter 11, which tells us that, Abraham and the others were looking beyond even physical land of Canaan. It's why we appeal to Romans 4 and Romans 9 and, and Galatians 4 later in today's sermon and so on. So all of that is just was just kind of an aside. It's sort of a bracket. I think a, a, a better preacher would have found a way to make that uh, its own point. Um, but, here, but here we are. So in um, whatever way you land on that, if you're still not convinced, you think, I think maybe this was an initial doubt. Uh, this is nothing we're breaking fellowship over. Um, either way, we do know and we have seen already in Genesis, and we will see it as we continue in Genesis, that two things are true of Abraham. He is definitely a sinner. We've seen that. We will see it again. And he is also definitely a man who believed God and a man of faith. So God does hear Abraham's concern for Ishmael here. And he responds in verse 20. He says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Ishmael will indeed be multiplied, as God has already promised to Hagar back in chapter 16. Now God adds that he's going to be made into 12 princes that will come from him. And we will see this more of this, uh, uh, Ishmael's descendants, in chapter 25 when we get to his genealogy, which we're all anticipating. So God is going to look after Hagar and Ishmael. But it's reiterated here in verse 21 that the covenant that God is making with Abraham is going to be passed down, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac's line. And what we are seeing in this section is the doctrine of election. That God is sovereignly choosing to enact his plan and to give his promise to and through Isaac. He is bypassing Ishmael. Ishmael will have certain blessings, but God's covenant is going to go through Isaac. And when the New Testament comments or looks back on Isaac's birth, when it explicitly mentions Isaac and his birth, it appeals to this in order to demonstrate God's sovereign election, to prove the point. And therefore to prove that man's reception of grace is through faith. That that is how man is saved. Not through our ability to do enough righteousness. Not through circumcision or other obedience to law. Isaac is in many ways a miraculous baby. His parents are too old for this. Uh, Galatians 4... Says that he is a son who was born through promise. God overcomes the age and the barrenness of his parents. And he keeps his promise to Abraham and to Sarah, who believe God in this matter. Isaac himself has done absolutely nothing at this point to deserve this. Rather, he is clearly the recipient of God's sovereign grace. God's choice. But this is, this is a, a, a pure kindness that God gives to Isaac here. He's done nothing deserving of it. Galatians 4 verse 28 says of Christians, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He's saying there's a similarity here to Isaac. Just as God sovereignly gave the promise to Isaac out of pure grace, so too he sovereignly gives the promise of salvation to all who believe by pure grace. Just as he chose Isaac, so he chooses sinners to save graciously. And just as Isaac was born in a miraculous fashion, so too all that God saves are born again by his spirit into Abraham's spiritual family. And this is a miraculous new birth, an act of God's sovereignty that ultimately accounts for why it is that sinners believe in Christ. And so it is that the true, redeemed offspring of Abraham, they are not simply physical descendants of his, but are those who have been chosen by God to be recipients of his unmerited favor. This is what we we read there as we went through Romans chapter 9, which also appeals to the birth of Isaac and the choosing of Isaac to make this case, and then moves on to choosing Jacob over Esau. And these spiritual offspring of Abraham are recognized then by the fact that they believe as he believed not simply by the fact that they lived in physical Canaan, but they believe, they share in his faith. And again, this is what Jesus says to the Jews in his own day in John chapter 8. If you truly were the children of Abraham, you would do the works that Abraham did. You would believe as he did. You would obey as he did. He rejoiced to see my day, Jesus says. And here you are trying to stone me, kill me. And so all this explains why it is That within the Old Covenant, when we look at the Old Testament, the people of Israel, you'd have a, a remnant of true believers within the larger physical offspring of Abraham. Many, you remember Elijah lamenting that there's nobody left. There's nobody who believes. Everybody's rebellious. And God says, no, I've kept a remnant for myself. Those who did believe within the larger group Commenting on Galatians four twenty eight, where it says that Christians, like Isaac, are children of promise. Here's what John Calvin writes. He says, Paul next concludes that we Christians become the sons of God by promise after the example of Isaac, and that in no other way do we obtain this honor. To readers little skilled or practiced in the examination of Scripture, this reasoning may appear inconclusive because they do not hold the most undoubted of all principles that all the promises being founded on the Messiah are of free grace. The reception of salvation has never been merely about a physical descendant of Abraham. Nor is it about obeying the law of God well enough or being externally circumcised. But it is by God's gracious calling of the individual who then responds by faith in Christ, with faith in Christ. Again, under the Old Testament, they're looking forward to his coming and we having seen that he has indeed come. And when a sinner believes in the Lord Jesus Christ in this way, truly they place their faith in him. They see and understand their sinfulness. They place their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are renewed. They are made new within. This is the miraculous work of God in the heart of a sinner. Just as Isaac was miraculously born, so too all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been born again miraculously of the Spirit. Another commentator writes, Paul looks back, again, it's talking of Paul in Galatians 4, 28, Paul looks back to the narrative of Genesis regarding Isaac and reminds us first of our identity. We, the church, are like Isaac. We are children of the promise because we are born not through flesh and blood, nor the will of a father, nor by human decision, but by the Holy Spirit. Of course, appealing to John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, we think of Jesus telling Nicodemus of the necessity of this new birth of God breathing life into the dead sinner such that we would believe. This is the work of God. Jesus himself saying that the Spirit doing this, just like the wind, it blows where it wishes, so too. The work of the Spirit ultimately is God who does this. As we consider the plan of God throughout the book of Genesis, we continue to run into this reality that this is in fact God's plan. It's his doing. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, they think that they're going to take a shortcut and get the promises that God has made through this arrangement with Hagar. And God emphatically says no. And even though they have a child and God says he'll take care of Hagar and Ishmael, he demonstrates his sovereignty here by carrying forth the promises of Abraham, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac, the son of promise. God's sovereignty to show mercy to whom he will show mercy and have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. This doctrine of election raises many questions, but it is very clearly taught in Scripture. One has to wrestle with the reality that God here chooses Isaac and not Ishmael, that later he will choose Jacob instead of Esau, Or even we could back up and look at God's choosing and calling of Abraham out of everybody who was walking the earth at the time. We mentioned back when we looked at chapter 12 that Abraham was from a family of idolaters at that point. I think one of the reasons the New Testament points to God choosing Isaac and then later choosing Jacob over Esau is to demonstrate God's sovereignty because they were both not yet born when the decision was made, scripture tells us. In fact, at this point in Genesis 17, Isaac is not even an embryo yet. There is no Isaac whatsoever. It's not even that he's in the womb, he does not exist but in the mind of God. How could he have done something then later on to deserve this God choosing him? And explicitly, as we read in Romans 9, God choosing Jacob over Esau was before either of them were born. And Paul tells us, scripture tells us, before either of them could have done anything good or bad. It's highlighting God's kindness and grace and sovereignty in all of this. The result is that for those who believe, all the glory goes to God. We've done nothing to make us worthy of belief. Worthy of understanding. Worthy to belong to the Lord. We have zero to boast in. But God and what he has done. Man's sinful condition. We have seen this throughout Genesis. Recall back to the flood. We will see it again as we get into next week. Into chapter 18 in Sodom and Gomorrah. We have seen how bad things can get upon the earth. How dire the sinful condition is. The need is for the work of God on the heart of sinful man to regenerate sinners, the dead sinner. The need is for the new birth. And of course, we affirm and we understand that God does use means to draw sinners to himself, to cause them to be born again. The Bible tells us God uses the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to do that. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And this is why the commission has been given to the church to go forth into all the earth and to proclaim this good news. Because that's the means that God in his sovereignty uses to draw sinners to himself. And so we do. We go out and we tell and we proclaim there is salvation in Christ Jesus. He has performed everything necessary for us to be justified before God and to be forgiven of our sins by dying for those sins on the cross and rising from the dead. And then we call men and women as ambassadors of God to be reconciled to God, to repent of your sin, to acknowledge your sin before God, to understand you fall short of God's perfection and glory. And to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of those sins. We proclaim that message. We appeal to sinners to believe. To turn. But we leave those results to God. We do not manipulate man. When it seems that it's not working. When it seems that well people don't seem to want to believe. We don't alter the message. We don't change things. We don't try to soft pedal it all. We don't try to manipulate someone into believing these things. We we just lay it out there and we entrust it to God. The results are truly in His hands, for it is His to save. So we have God's sovereign choice. Secondly, the believer's dutiful obedience. We'll move through this one more quickly. In verses 22 to 27, we see Abraham's obedience to the command to circumcise all the males of his household. So in verse 22, we read, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. There is much that is unique about this particular act of obedience Uh, We spoke last time about how this was the sign of the covenant that God was making with Abraham, how there was a threat of disobedience to this particular command of being cut off from that covenant. We noted how this law, this command is tied to the old covenant, which is with all of the physical offspring of Abraham that they were to keep in order to be part of that old covenant, to receive the blessings within it. And so, Abraham, in obedience to the command here, circumcises all the males of his household. There's uniqueness to this act of obedience, but there's also much here that is instructive for us as believers today in terms of our obedience and the call to obey our Lord. Recall that God has called Abraham at the beginning of chapter 17 to walk before him blamelessly, uprightly, Receiving God's mercy, His sovereign grace, is not a license to then walk in sin. Remember, Paul addresses that very question, saying, how can we who've died to sin still walk in it? Right? How can one who has truly been born again, been made new in the heart, just carry on in sin in the old way of living as if nothing has happened? It's not possible. That's the argument from Paul. One of the things that stands out here with Abraham's obedience is that he obeyed immediately, promptly. In verse 26, it says, that very day he did this. So, I mean, you can imagine the excuses that one might muster in order to delay this kind of obedience, this particular act. But Abraham, appropriately and rightly, did it right away, that very day. The Lord concludes the encounter. It says he went up from Abraham in verse 22. And that very same day, Abraham gets to it. He obeys. It's a good reminder that we are not to delay obedience to the Lord. That today is the day to walk before him, to deal honestly with him, not tomorrow. If there's an area of your life that is in need of conforming to the will of God, conforming to Scripture, today is the day to do so. Today is the day to make war against your sin. Today is the day to, as Christ says, cut off that right hand that causes you to sin. Today is the day to put on the virtues that God calls you to, to cease with the excuses and to strive in this manner. Obviously, we know that obedience to God is not always just that simple. Well, okay, today, great, I'll just do it. And now I just conform in every way. Conforming our hearts to God's law is not a matter of simply snapping the fingers. But we also sometimes can get a little bit lazy because of this in the battle as well. And that's something that we do need to, to guard against well, I'm not going to perfectly obey today, so I'll just, whatever, not really try. It can happen. And the promptness of this obedience shows us that Abraham took this with the utmost seriousness. And this is the appropriate response. God says something, I submit to it. And so we we, we are to be working to, conform our hearts and our minds to the word of God and to what God says. Notice also that this was a difficult obedience. I trust I do not need to explain why this is not the easiest command to obey. We don't know what all the males in his household thought about this. Uh, We know that there were a lot of men in his household. Remember, he took... Uh, in chapter 14, he took 300 of them off to war. That was just the men who were capable of, of going to war. So there's a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of men. Surely they were not all real pleased about this. But Abraham ignored all of that, whatever the grumblings there might have been, and he did as God commanded him to do. Obedience, we're reminded to God, is not necessarily going to be viewed well by others. In fact, that often it won't be. And that's okay. We have to reckon with that reality. So we must banish the fear of man and live our lives to God. Further, his obedience here comes at an old age. He's 99. Finishing well in the Christian life is something that we must set our minds to. Many true believers flicker and flame out near the end either letting their guards down in the battle or sometimes through just assuming that their days of usefulness are over. But I would encourage us to not take that mentality. The Bible calls gray hair a crown of glory. Proverbs 20, 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Usefulness in the church and meaningful existence is not just for the young. So by God's grace, let us finish well. Well, in closing here, we continue to see through Genesis God's salvation plan unfolding. The promised offspring of the woman who's going to deliver man from the curse of sin is going to come. He's gonna come not only just from Abraham, but specifically through Isaac's line. This this child, Isaac, who is going to be born impossibly, it would seem, of Sarah. And it reminds us that the whole matter of redeeming man is God's gracious doing. It is a promise that we receive by faith alone in him. And we see the appropriate response in Abraham of faith And then walking before the Lord in obedience. And so let us believe the promise of God in Christ Jesus. Let us rest in his grace to sinners. And then let us live our lives in conscious recognition of his presence. Seeking to obey him in everything that he calls us to. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is true that what we bring to this whole matter of salvation is our sin. And we receive eternity. We receive adoption as your children. We receive the wiping out of our debt. We receive new hearts Sanctification, and one day we will receive glorification. And Father, all of this is your grace given to sinners. Father, even that faith to believe we know exists where it does exist because of your sovereign saving. Father, we truly have nothing to boast of in your presence forgive us where pride does overcome us where we think that our doings and our obedience is really something father may we give all glory to you for everything and any sign of grace within us for it is grace Father, we thank you that your son has come to secure redemption and that you pour it out graciously. Father, I pray that this again would would encourage and strengthen us in the battle and that you would give us much strength to strive toward holiness now as your people. You call us to that. May we joyfully offer ourselves before you each day to that end. Father, we pray that you would work in us a holy discontent for our sins. A discontent of seeking satisfaction in the things of the world. Father, that we would be more and more single-minded as we live out these days for you. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for all that you do for us in every aspect of life your provisions for us. We continue to look to you. Help us to be those who do not fear man, but who are prepared to obey you and do what you call us to, regardless of the cost. Father, we don't want to have arrogant attitudes that we assume we would always do the right thing, regardless of the cost, even if someone threatened us. Father, we we, in humble recognition of our weakness know that if you do not graciously help us, we would buckle under pressure. And so we pray for your grace. We pray for your spirit to empower godly living among us. Father, we, we thank you that you do not cast us aside. We thank you that you have adopted us as your children through Christ Jesus and that this was your good purpose to do. Father, help us to each day walk lowly before you, conscious that we walk before your face. May it be our joy to commune with you each day through prayer and through the reading of your word. Lord, we need your grace and help in all of these things. And so we do ask this of you, In the name of our Lord Jesus, trusting that we are heard. Amen.